Hello and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and it's Monday, November 23rd, 2020, and I'm joined today in the studio by Chad O'Carroll, Jongmin Kim, and Collins Worker. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for joining me on this Roundtable Podcast. Good morning. Morning. But before we do, I'd like to tell you all a little bit about NK News, founded in 2010, making this the 10th anniversary, uh, by CEO Chad O'Carroll. Korea Risk Group maintains two information services about the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or what we like to call North Korea for short. And those two news services are NK News and NK Pro. NK News publishes news stories daily about developments in and information in, from, and about North Korea. Meanwhile, NK Pro is a premium-level platform for members who need more specific and detailed information, qualified analysis, and hard-to-obtain data in a timely manner. Korea Risk Group publications are entirely funded by subscriptions, giving NK News and NK Pro full independence in our reporting and analysis. The two publications are widely considered among North Korea watchers in governments, business, and academia to be the best North Korea-focused outlets available. And I certainly agree with that, don't you all? The best. I use it daily. The best. We'd love for all of you to become subscribers to NK News if you aren't already. And if your institution or company wants to get more exclusive information and research tools, think about upgrading to NK Pro. Why not try a year's subscription today? Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving a review at iTunes. And of course, do subscribe to the podcast. The podcast is free. That being said, let's get into today's roundtable. Where do we begin? We begin with... Ah, Jongmin, I do love a story with a good sensational headline. And last week you had one that ticked all my boxes. And that title was, North Korea says foreign goods can spread the devil's virus and kill people. Do North Koreans believe in the devil? Can you ask again? <laughs> do they? Oh, did I catch you off guard there? Okay. Mm. Uh, they do believe that COVID-19 is the devil's virus, and they actually use the term angmae pirus. Okay, I was about uh, to ask you. So angma, the uh, standard Korean yes. word for devil. Yeah. So um, they, are talk- they are using this angmae pirus term, um, talking about how there is a second wave in other sides of the world, like not in North Korea, allegedly, but they are warning uh, day in and day out that internationally there, with the winter coming, a lot of people are dying out and and getting infected so much, um, but that they are doing a good job locking down the border as usual for the past nine plus months. Now, when they say foreign goods can spread the devil's virus, is this based on a theory, well, based on the idea that yeah, if I'm infected and I handle a product and then three days later, you know, you take it off the shelf at the supermarket and you buy that product that you can get sick from that virus? I think that's a general idea. They never really clarify what they mean. Ah. But gathering what they cite, they sometimes report as international news about some sort of uh, research done by some foreign expert. Um, they were talking about how there could be surface transmissions and They were warning against a lot of other things that there is no exact scientific consensus on, like how Mm. the yellow dust flying in from China could spread COVID-19 or how cigarettes increase the likelihood Mm. of contracting COVID-19, migratory birds and snowflakes and other stuff like that. And that includes surface transmission. And I think this idea that goods can bring in COVID-19, it has been a couple of months, I think. In August, uh, no, in June, actually, when the the South Korean, some of the South Korean defectors were um, flying flyers through the balloon launching, uh, balloon launching activities, uh, some of the North Korean articles talked about how started talking about how North Koreans, when they see items that are flying around or floating in the water, they shouldn't touch it. Sometimes they related it to their anti-epidemic work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one. But generally that idea is, is not really supported very strongly, is it? I mean, I don't, from my you know casual reading of the Lancet and uh, weekly World Health Organization reports on the weekend, the idea that I can touch something and then give that virus to somebody else who touches it much later on, it's not really a strong uh, vector in, in the, uh, the, the method of transmission, is it? Yeah, well, remember you and I were discussing over lunch, Colin, like wh- who's driving all this? Because like, it does seem to be quite kind of pseudoscience at this stage. And to to take steps like 
stopping or strongly discouraging people to step outside just because the wind is blowing a certain way or mm. not you know go near snow that may have come from countries that are infected it, it they do seem like very radical steps that have a lot of consequences and i think uh well and also the the i think they ran a, a piece on tv last week that was talking about nine days is the the uh the number that they believe something can live on a that the virus can live on a surface of a box or anything coming in from abroad so i mean it's just my opinion but i gathering from all of this extreme paranoia throughout the year uh, everyone having to keep on wearing masks and uh, especially because state media continues to say they continue to describe the virus as something which can cause uh, irreversible fatal damage to the country mm. meaning like the country will cease to exist if this virus catches hold inside the country and to me it just feels like an admission that despite how hard they're trying to keep the borders completely locked down uh, that it is possible for some people to come through the border on their own like the defector the redefector from south korea or especially along the border with china so as long as that is a an actual possibility because they cannot control every inch of the border right then they have to keep people at the very at a very heightened level of mm. of uh caution now of course i want to be very careful i don't mean to say that the virus cannot uh, exist outside the human body as you say that it can exist uh, it can remain what viable uh, for nine days on on an object uh, but you need to intake enough of that virus in order to actually uh, to infect you uh, and that this is not the major method of transmission that that the health authorities are warning about it's it's, it's like a very low chance the main thing is simply person-to-person transmission yeah. and, and it makes me wonder now it, in this warning here that foreign goods can spread the devil's virus is this uh, an a well, can we learn from this that the North Korean government and its health advisors actually believe that COVID-19 is majorly spread through foodstuffs and other goods? Or is it more about an attack on imported products? Yeah, I don't think, it, I don't think they would like to... I don't think they want to stop imported products coming in because it is starting to have a lot of consequences. A lot of the uh, DPRK consumer goods, uh, light industrial products all require imported inputs for the recipes or formulae or whatever it may be. And so there are significant ramifications by preventing the vast majority of goods coming in uh, that the DPRK won't be able to solve anytime soon. So I do think it is probably rooted in a concern about health. But again, like it, it, it has so many significant consequences to take such a hard line approach that... I, I do wonder, like, I keep going back to that question you, you posed, Colin, like, who, who, is, who is the team behind this? And, like, what, what are their um, strategic goals in doing this? Because it seems like there are a lot of own goals that are being scored through this policy as well. I would just say it again. I think that uh, they admit quite clearly in state media that uh, they see this as posing such a dire risk to the survival of the the government of the country as a whole that it's a reflection of admitting that their health care system is not up to the standards of other countries so that if if that's the case and if the virus really does take hold then well then they have to keep people as paranoid and as careful as possible even if that means all of these consequences um because the, the consequences of uh not importing goods and keeping everyone on lockdown is less than the actual demise of the government just to remind our listeners there haven't actually been any confirmed cases of COVID-19 as announced by the North Korean government yet have they uh they haven't reported uh any positively tested patients mm. but they said that there are more than 6,000 suspected cases as of end of October that's but the North Korean government yes mm. they reported to WHO but the disclaimer here is we are not entirely sure what suspected case means it mm. could mean just that they have uh, similar symptoms to right. COVID-19 or they have fever this um, is a word that comes out in English from the WHO? Yes, in English. So Suspected really, case. But didn't they use a similar word back uh, Sorry. during the case yeah. on the, the case of the redefector? Wasn't it kind same. of like just not not suspected, but someone to watch, someone to be careful of? Or, or? Uh, in English, they said suspected. Yeah, case, I know. I but like, do we, do we interpret that as not, oh, they might have COVID, but maybe more of just they have symptoms that we need to watch? Uh, I think it's more like a ladder. 
under observation. Yeah, under observation. Mm, observation. Okay. Uh, and it's 6,000 You mean hmm? Uijinja. From the Kezon case? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I think it's different. Suspected case. In, in Kezong case, I think it's it was the first time they mentioned suspected case. Mm. But Uijinja, I think they kept talking about that. Patients under observation. About the foreign goods thing, I think also, I think sometimes North Korea, when they start using a certain term or start emphasizing some, something in state media, they don't always do that super strategically. Sometimes they just do that because it's convenient. And I think in case of this, I think... It's also very convenient for them to say stuff against foreign goods because, first of all, in summer, uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un rejected all foreign aids um, talking about how they want to close down the border. And second, Sweepyong, the disease against a disease of relying on imported goods, it's mm. like a very common a regular theme in North Korean state media as well. And they have been talking about that a couple of times this year as well. So it's, I think it's easy for them to talk about how foreign goods can bring in COVID-19. So it's just one of those reasonings that they can come up with when they're locking down the border and the trade is going down and they don't have enough foreign goods in their supermarket. And it's convenient because they can talk against foreign goods to sort of prop up, uh, you know, the self-reliance of exactly, the of yeah. the of the homegrown industry while at the same time of course importing a lot of foreign goods that people because you know you see them uh censoring foreign goods on tv all the time but people north koreans living in north korea are not being censored from all the foreign products around them right you exactly. know? now chad you wrote a story last week titled covid19 lockdowns are causing severe imported food shortages in pyongyang so clearly related topic here tell us what's going on here yeah, so basically, we've been hearing this from sources for a while now, but um, it seems to be a mounting problem. There are a number of stores in Pyongyang, supermarkets, department stores, um, that are well known for carrying large quantities of f foreign uh, imported like food products, you know, everything from mayonnaise, tin beans to um, biscuits, uh, milk products, coffee, etc., um, and basically, as a result of the absence of importation from China from at least like mid-July onwards, um, the stores have been, the shelves have been becoming extremely bare. Uh, and like I've been, some of the sources told me that the things that they're that are just really hard to get now are like sugar, dairy products, cooking oil, uh, meat is really um, difficult. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like North Korean meat is the only stuff you can get, and supplies of that have been sort of wavering. Um, and as a result, that some of these um, stores that used to to sell this stuff, they're now selling a lot of North Korean products. But I've been told shelf space is being taken up by things like North Korean domestic-made toilet paper, mm. or um, you've got very old stocks of imported goods that were you know imported months or years ago like bottles of russian vodka and stuff you can still find that but the fresh stuff is is just all but impossible to get mm. um someone told me that coffee uh, 150 grams of of um instant coffee about 30 euros now um so things are really short um i've even heard that the russian embassy has begun farming chickens to in have, the compound have an independent meat and egg supply in the future i'm not uh being able to corroborate that but it, it wouldn't surprise me because it would be quite a smart thing to do and given, they do have a big compound like yeah um so basically yeah and then when you look at the trade data mm. i mean the chinese trade trade data michelle my colleague uh told me that july was the last month that meat vegetables or any kind of food across the border and that's and, what, what are we now five months later right so that's a big deal yeah, and yeah. Russian trade data from November um, has shown that only soybean oil and processed foods crossed the water in August, some processed foods in August and September. So basically, um, yeah, it's it's a mounting problem. The main people being affected are like the middle classes of Pyongyang who would have been, you know, buying this kind of stuff fairly regularly. Mm. I, I'd be very curious to know how restaurants and hotels are being affected throughout the, the country um presumably not they're not being used as much well yeah because there's no foreign visitors i mean do, do north koreans t use their own hotels much yeah i believe so i yeah. mean there's you know you'll often have um delegations internally going mm. to pyongyang and things like that 
But what the interesting thing is, I spoke to Thomas Fissler, who used to be the Swiss uh, development and cooperation director in mm. Pyongyang for four years about what these shortages mean outside the, the capital. Because, you know, we haven't heard from anyone now who's been to rural areas of North Korea since January. So it's like really, oh like, it's a huge black hole. I mean, the, the Russian ambassador has been to Chongjin and I think the Chinese ambassador went to a Chinese war memorial, uh, a Korean war memorial site outside of Pyongyang. But that's, there's been no independent uh, eyes anywhere in the DPRK for a very long time. So how are these problems um, impacting life outside the capital? But uh, Fissler uh, said that in his experience, the North Koreans that you find out in rural areas tend to be a lot more self-sufficient by dint of there being no other choice. And his analysis is that these are the kind; these aren't the kinds of people that could ever even afford imported goods in mm. the first place. They are basically subsistence farmers. Um, they often have better food supplies than in the capital. He said because they can, you know, shoot. They can hunt, they can um, get extra crops and so on. Uh, so he didn't think the problem would be too big, but he did speculate that if this problem continues long term in Pyongyang, this middle class elite population will start to get really quite upset because how long can you keep spinning this like COVID excuse to to your sort of upper class populations and make them live in really quite dire circumstances. It's interesting that uh, the self-imposed COVID-19 blockade by North Korea is starting to have the effect that the sanctions never could. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And I'm just going, I want to turn back to uh, what you said about the, the rural areas, that they might often have a better food supply than in, in uh, Pyongyang because they can grow their own food, they can hunt their own meat, etc. But I'm just wondering if, if the... Uh, the shortage of imported foods in Pyongyang becomes um, as serious as you say it is becoming now, then you've effectively got more people competing yeah. for the food that the, the people in the countryside are getting, right? So in the end, it still has a an overall effect, not just in the city, but also in the country as people are trying to, to buy up the little food that's left. Yeah, that's what Peter Ward, our contributing analyst at NK Pro, said that the absence of imported goods will lead to more demand on the domestically produced goods which means that yeah there could be uh, more price volatility mm. more uh, demand on certain products and less supply um, and i mean this all kind of leads in nicely to what we've been noticing with currency as well mm. which may be related to this yeah tell us about that that the uh, the currencies uh, what the the dollar is falling or something there, there are two exchange rates as many of our listeners know in in north korea uh the market uh unofficial rate and the official bank rate um let's forget about the latter because it's practically not very useful for anyone but tourists um, and doris com and or <laughs> and doris com um but yeah the market price of the dollar usually floats around eight thousand uh korean people's one we heard from a source it had dropped to six thousand five hundred um, in some of the kiosks around Pyongyang. Daily NK reporting 6,200. Rimjingang, uh, another media outlet that tracks information inside the country, had 6,900. And so across three independent sources, we've got a, a figure around 6,500. Now that would mean, that, well, that could only happen if the value of the won had risen against the US dollar, and that almost never happens. So how, can, how has this occurred? So there are a few contributing factors. One, we've heard from sources that the shops and restaurants of Pyongyang, and this is just Pyongyang, but probably this is going on nationwide, are really reluctant to take foreign currency right now. So they don't, they they just don't want it. So mm. that's leading for a requirement to pay in Korean people's one. Um, so that means you've got to transfer your um usd into korean people's one to use it in more places previously just certain places like tongil market would require you to pay in korean people's one now it seems to be everywhere but they've for several weeks we were hearing that long lines were forming at the kiosks in places like tongil market which suggests that there has been a kind of rush to to get korean people's one mm. but there seems to be a limit of supply of korean people's one because 
sources and indeed the Russian embassy complained a few weeks ago about new rules from the North Korean government that you could only transfer $100 a day into Korean people's one. Ah. So an artificial control in with regards to how much KPW you can get in any given day. And so basically, it just seems like there is an effort to reduce the flow of foreign currency for practical daily transactions and also to limit the supply of Korean people's one, which, again, Peter, our contributing analyst who does a lot on econ, uh, his theory is that this is all a um, means to ensure that demand doesn't raise beyond the limits of supply and therefore can keep pricing stability in the short to medium term. So, so demand for products. Yeah, so there's less money in people's pockets. Right. That means people have to be choosier about what they buy. Right. That means the supply isn't stretched as much and therefore prices don't need to be to spike in response to growing demand. That's his theory. But, um, hmm. but this also may have a link to the absence of foreign products because to buy foreign products, you need foreign currency. And if there are no foreign products coming in, there's no need for foreign currency. Now, when I went to the uh, the department store that they take all the tourists to uh, in April last year, I forget the name now, but one of the first things you do there is you go to the, the kiosk and, and exchange money. So even in that department store, you had to pay with uh, with Korean people's one. Um, would it still be the situation now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an, an interesting trend in the last year. Like, you'll remember your early days as tourists. I mean, the North Korean guides would usually just pretend that this market rate didn't exist and right. that, that, that they had no idea what you're talking about. Um, there seems to be, since my last trip in 2018, we had a few times where people had no foreign currency change left and gave us the market exchange rate, so thousands of won. Uh, so I think it's become more commonplace, but certainly, yeah, those those foreign trade stores, those department stores, um, they have an exchange booth at the on the way in, yeah. And I guess that's the state sucking up foreign currency in order to oblige people to pay in local currency. But that seems to be happening across the board, which also could be. Due, some people have speculated the government wants to suck up as much foreign currency as possible because it's financially in a bad state. Now, with the, the prepaid stored value cards, the uh, is it the Nenara cards? Na, that, Nare cards. Nare yeah. cards that people are using. Those more cards are similar too. Right. So um, is it possible, was it ever possible to put foreign currency on those cards or can you only load up uh, Korean people's one onto those cards? If you're saying that the the uh, supply of Korean people's one is shrinking, uh, that, but that wouldn't affect people who are using the stored value cards because they could possibly still put well, actually, one of the reports we also heard was that the, those cards were not being rejected. I don't know if that's still wait, the wait, case. Wait, the prepaid cards, people were saying, being... yeah, people were saying that those were not being re- accepted. Oh, um, this was the, the the phone minutes. Phone story. minutes was in Daily NK, I think. Oh, okay, um, but I think the Russian embassy posted that on their Facebook page. They said Naro cards are not being accepted. Now that's an interesting development. Yeah, huh. I don't know if it's still the case. This is a good time to mention a piece that Peter Ward wrote for NK Pro that our NK Pro subscribers can read. It's an analysis piece titled North Korea's Radically Changed Currency Policy Could Destabilize the Economy. Now, without giving away too much of the crown jewels, Chad, can you give our listeners a little teaser to encourage them to check out an NK Pro subscription? What's this all about? Um, Peter is basically trying to interpret what all of this means Mm. and what the medium-term, long-term consequences of it all could be. And he's, uh, if I, if my memory serves correctly, he's basically detailing some risk that the, the government may face from these kind of policies because they're, they're, they're short-term fixes, right? They're not... And if we don't see a, a serious improvement in the, the COVID situation that facilitates an opening of borders, then these problems are likely to articulate in new ways. Okay, and it's that kind of analysis about uh, possible uh, implications and, and future uh, uh, events that uh, NK Pro is famous for, isn't it? That's that's correct. We are basically uh, NK Pro. If, if you're just familiar with NK News, I'd say that the main difference with NK Pro is we're trying to keep readers ahead of the curve when it comes to understanding uh, both risk and opportunity relating to North Korea. 
So yeah, if you work on the subject, then you're basically making your life a lot harder by not reading it. There you go. Colin, uh, I want to turn back to you now. You wrote a story last week titled US Raises Pressure on Countries Illegally Hosting North Korean Workers. Quickly sketch it for us. Which countries are illegally hosting North Korean workers and under whose laws is it illegal? So some countries that we know pretty well that are hosting North Korean workers right now would be China and Russia and uh, some other countries in the world to a lesser extent. Uh, the, I mean, I had a sort of a debate about this word as well. Illegal, it's just simply put, it's just a violation of uh, UN Security Council sanctions, which of course countries like Russia and China signed off on originally mm-hmm. in 2017. So it's... China and Russia ostensibly breaking their own rules that they agreed to at the UN Security Council. The US is trying to make these sanctions effective to their fullest potential. Uh, The US wants to block foreign currency flows into North Korea because they believe that all foreign currency going into North Korea is making its way to their uh, ICBM and nuclear weapons programs. Now, uh, what kind of workers are we talking about? Are they uh, your standard, uh, you know, loggers and forest workers in in Russia and restaurant workers in China, or is there more to it? Yeah, these are the ones that are, I think, the most common. The ones that you might also hear about in the UN panel of experts reports would be like IT workers uh, finding a base in, uh, like, I think there was reports in Vladivostok in Russia or in China. Uh, to where uh, North Korean IT workers would be, their operations would be based out of some foreign country, some foreign city. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, the it's the the sanctions that we're talking about here. The U.S. Treasury sanctions were just designating uh, one Russian company based in Saint Petersburg and a North Korean company uh, that is supposedly managing these workers that they're sending abroad and. Kind taking, of a, taking a, the profits. What you call an outsourcing agency or something like that? Uh, manpower agency? I'm actually curious what their evidence is, but mm. that they would be working directly with probably this company uh, yeah. with the North Korean sounding name that's based in St. Petersburg. Did I dream it or was there also a story somewhere about um, uh, an allegation of uh, masks, uh, f- uh, coronavirus face masks, possibly being produced by North Korean factory workers in China? Was that a, a thing? Yeah, so here's... It was kind of a coincidence, I guess. There were there was another story that was uh, published last week, uh, I think in The Guardian, mm. that also really latched onto this term, uh, slave labor. And the, the thing about the U.S. Treasury sanctions was that this Treasury press release called it forced labor. Mm. And this kind of sparked a debate that I've seen in the last few days mm. in reaction to these stories, which is... Uh, is it slave labor? Is it forced labor? If, uh, as it's been well documented, as and as uh, Professor Andre Lenka uh, provided a comment for uh, the story that you asked about, is that it's probably technically not forced labor if you think about it very simply. Like these people from North Korea, they want these positions, they fight for these positions, sometimes they pay bribes to get these positions in other countries. Now, once they go to these other countries and they're working in construction or logging or something in a factory, it's not a holiday and, uh, yeah, tough conditions, not no freedom. They're watched very closely by uh, their managers or North Korean agents. So right. it's not it's not like this is uh, a great job position or anything. But technically speaking, a lot of people will find issue and have found issue with calling it slave labor or forced labor. Yeah, we recently did a podcast on uh, well, episode number 153 on this topic with Andre Lankov, who you said is quoted in the article, and Peter Ward. Uh, why is this topic controversial? Because there's a big debate about what is right. So some human rights activists basically support the sanctions that aim to send these people home. Mm. And in fact, that was, I mean, they were supposed to have all been sent home by December last yeah, yeah, year, yeah. weren't they? Under yeah. UN sanctions. Yeah. 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 And in fact, COVID has technically complicated that. Some people, like some restaurant waitresses, have told reporters they can't get home mm. because of the COVID restrictions. So I guess the argument is some people believe that of these individual workers are not being respected while they're working overseas. And therefore, the foreign countries hosting them are basically tacitly approving of that very dire human rights situation overseas and I, I guess the sanctions argument is it's basically just down to money the architects of these sanctions want to 
shrink the income sources as much as possible for North Korean government so that WMD programs are hindered. But where what I really don't understand the human rights logic of is, yeah, these people come overseas to country X or Y. As Colin said, they've bribed their, they, they've chosen to be there. They Even if like 70, 80% of their revenue is being taken by the government, they're still making a hell of a lot more than they will in North Korea. And that fam- that cash can then be used to support family, etc. What is the human rights argument for sending them back? Is it that by sending them back, we hope that the government in Pyongyang will realize that this is a dead end and it needs to therefore improve the situation of the human rights workers overseas? And so long term, it will have a positive effect. Is that the argument? Yeah, I agree. I think it comes down to uh, strategically what people think will work in the long run, where they think their grand plan to to solve the North Korea problem that was quote unquote will will come down. So yeah, if they want to prevent people from going abroad and having a maybe a little bit better of a lifestyle, maybe a little bit more money that they can bring home, maybe maybe on the off chance they'll they'll learn a little bit more about the outside world or they will be more they will have a, a better chance of hearing a radio broadcast or something that will change their mind. Yeah, some people think that that's worth it, regardless of if they're earning money that's going to go back to the North Korean government or if, you know, another country is kind of supporting these these uh, human rights violations of of not having a... As but, you know, I'd, lo- I'd love to see these human rights people stand at Dandong at the train station and look all these people in the eye one by one as they go home and say, oh, this is feel good. I'm supporting you going home and being kicked out of your job because maybe in a few years time... And they look them in the eye and tell them that because I, I think it's like frankly ridiculous and it really, you can probably hear in the tone of my voice, I get mm. very agitated by it because I can't see like how anyone living in like a, a European capital can make these decisions and advocate for individual North Koreans without actually speaking to them. Anyone listening to the podcast who'd like to come on and advocate Please. that? Please, uh, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd love to know workers. the argument. I'd uh, love to know the human rights argument for We welcome them. I think I've heard it a bunch. It's, it's the human rights advocate who supports the most stringent enforcement of economic sanctions and a full blockade against North Korea, meaning that that will bring an end to the North Korean government in a shorter period of time and release these people to to, to more freedom quicker. So that's, is, I think that's is, the argument. Is regime change then yeah, dressed yeah, yeah. up as human rights concern? Some people might think that, yes. Uh, Jongmin, you had a story, continuing our theme, Jongmin, you had a story last week titled North Korea accuses the UN of unfairness and human rights meddling. What's the meddling that North Korea is accusing the UN of? This was a statement by Kim Sung, the North Korean representative to the United Nations. And the term that he used was work one hengi, which mm-hmm. means unauthorized acts of meddling in the issues, including human rights, that go beyond the UNSC's competence or the member state's competence. So this is not entirely new, Mm. but this is an ongoing theme that North Korean ambassadors or high-level officials talk about when they mention United Nations Security Council that they are infringing on their sovereignty and the right to make decisions for themselves. And that includes sanctions and all the other issues that he did not specify what type of Um, unauthorized acts he was actually talking about or which member state but this came the releasing of the statement came just a day after United Nations renewed the human rights resolution for the 16th year in a row and another possible thing is that it came a month after Quintana, the UN special reporter uh, on North Korea, he in October urged North Korea to revise its COVID-19 prevention guidelines, mm-hmm. um, saying that the September slaying of the South Korean government worker in North Korean waters uh, was against international human rights law. Now, I, uh, I recorded a podcast interview with Ambassador Bob King, former U.S. State Department Special Envoy on Human Rights Issues in North Korea. And he also wrote an op-ed piece published on NK News last week. Uh, and he said that he's quite confident that the U.S. under President Biden will appoint a new special envoy to fill the position that he left vacant uh, four years ago. Can he expect to see, or can we rather, expect to see more North Korean complaints about human rights being used against it? I imagine they will like compared to the Trump period, because uh, although Trump met Kim Jong-un more than two times, he never brought up the human rights issue up front, like as 
the right. main he issue. Did in the lead up, he did in his uh, State of the Union speech in yeah, 2017. Right. So in the lead up, somehow was there before Detente. Yeah. Right. And then once he started talking, it was uh, very much on the back burner, wasn't it? And nor did President Moon Jae-in. Right. So th- these are issues that uh, that haven't been discussed uh, outside of the UN, you know, for a, at least two years. Does North Korea usually attend meetings at the UN where its human rights situation is discussed? Representative Kim Song does. So he goes there and provides the North Korean stance on certain things. It doesn't seem that he is like actively involved in voicing um, like vetoing or mm. anything. Now, there's one area where in the last few years, North Korea seems to have been willing to work with the international community on human rights, and that's improving the lives of the disabled in North Korea. Are you able to tell us anything about that? Well, they did pass a certain, some United Nations project, the commitment to report on this issue since I think they passed it in 2016 and they started reporting in 2019. So they are um, pretty active in doing that. Uh, But still experts, when they saw a North Korean report last year, early last year, um, they said that we they still need to corroborate with field research in North Korea because they couldn't really believe what they were talking about. Mm, okay. Well, yeah. There's always uh, that gap between, or the credibility gap between what the uh, what the government of any country claims and uh, and what's believed about it. If there's no access to monitoring or international observers, right? Yeah. And also, when I talk to defectors and ask about these like facilities for the disabled people, they say that maybe in Pyongyang, but not, it's not like they, they, some of the defectors said that they never really saw any active um, campaigns that support like the rights of the disabled or like these facilities that are more friendly to these people, Mm. for these people to move around the cities. All right, let's uh, talk about US elections. North Korea has been a bit quiet on that front. Have they said anything? Nothing, not a word. Is no. this common? I, I, I think it's useful to just look at it in terms of under Kim Jong-un uh, since 2012, basically, mm. since the 2012 election in the U.S. And uh, in 2012, not much of a reaction, not much of a, not much going on in state media talking about the U.S. election. It was really all about the South Korean election that was coming up in, at the end of 2012 at the time. But in 2016, really, really heavy coverage, comparatively, of the U.S. election, uh, calling the debates between Trump and Clinton and the, uh, I guess, the, 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 well, the arguments between the two and just everything going on in the U.S. media, a sign of the downfall of the U.S. system mm-hmm. and uh, really criticizing the U.S. election system in general. And then quickly announcing, you know, well, not announcing, but acknowledging the election both in the days prior and right after it in terms of, uh, you know, saying Chinese media said this about the election. And then a few days later, writing a commentary about well i can't remember the specifics but yes they were acknowledging the election um criticizing the election system mm-hmm. and then i think a f- couple of weeks later pretty much producing a, a prescription of what they want policy changes from the u.s side to, to look like from the incoming trump administration and this time just nothing of the sort so mm. it's a little hard to say what it what it means if you say there was a time when they did and a time that they didn't uh, right. respond but i've heard a lot from different people and also, Jungman and Chad probably have their own um, ideas, and we all have our own ideas about what it means, but uh, it's really complicated this time compared. You yeah. know, it's a, it's a different administration coming in, a different um, set of policies probably from Biden than what he ex- what Kim Jong-un experienced under Trump. Yeah, the election the, it has not been settled in the mind of Trump, who is his primary interlocutor. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, very complicated. What do Jungman, you what do you think? Uh, The Ministry of Unification's take was that in the past 10 years, there were um, instances when North Korea only reported on U.S. elections after the candidate who lost conceded, which Uh. is not happening in the United States right now. Um, So that is one possibility. But I think it's much more complicated. Um, My opinion was that for North Korea, this time it is really tricky to... Um, offer their take on the U.S. elections, although this time, too, it's a good opportunity for them to say bad things about a U.S. election system in general or U- uh, U.S. democracy in general. This time, it's about Trump going out. And first, Trump was one of the only U.S. president who was really friendly with Kim Jong-un. And if I were Kim Jong-un, it would be really tricky to tell mm. uh, North Korean people that Trump 
it's not going to exist as a president anymore because he put all his diplomatic eggs in the Trump baskets and now he's gone. And how is he going to explain that to North Korean general public? It's just really difficult for um, North Korea, North Korean leadership to say that to um, the domestic audience. But mm-hmm. it's also a bit confusing why they are just not reporting on it on all state media, including the externally focused ones as well. Yeah. Actually, on that point there, uh, Chad, I, I would be listening to some podcasts in the last few days suggesting that since Donald Trump is not a man who uh, we can imagine will retire quietly to do nothing but play golf, that he might become kind of an alternative uh, sort of a spoiler and may turn up in Pyongyang with Dennis Rodman to watch some basketball matches and do some sort of civilian diplomacy as kind of like a, a, a you know, uh, a different version of Jimmy Carter, should we say. Have you thought about that possibility? Both Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump were teetotal. So there, well, there you there go. Is there, there is precedent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's possible he could play a spoiler and um, he could go to Pyongyang. I mean, he could keep up the letters. He I mean, we know he's welcome there. Position himself as the, the president that will come after Biden. Uh, right, I mean, 2024. He, he could do all sorts. I disagree. I don't know. Isn't there some sort of law you can't advocate U.S. policy in an kind of an official capacity? Mm. And I think it would be. I think Kim Jong Un would. I, I think Kim Jong Un and North Korea would be much more strategic about it. Rodman is one thing, and that was in a different time period. You know, when there was nothing going on. So maybe if the Biden administration completely uh, gives Kim the cold shoulder, says you know it's not a priority to us right now, maybe Kim would find it useful to uh, invite. Trump. I think, but, but I think Trump that's can't gonna... go if if there's something going on. Uh, Actually, I'm, I'm thinking exactly that as a possibility that uh, since testing a nuclear device or an ICBM right now would be too provocative and would possibly even enrage China, inviting a uh, uh, a now civilian Donald Trump to come over to uh, to North Korea. China wouldn't care, uh, I, I can't imagine, but uh, but Biden and, and his administration would, would take that as a provocation, but it's not a military one. It's kind of a, a But that would only be if there was nothing going on Biden, yeah, I between think, Kim yeah. and Biden administration. No, exactly. But I, I think that that and that is the likelihood. Mm-hmm. I re- I really, for the first six months, right? I really don't see... I think you're being optimistic um, for our coverage because that would be so fun to, to watch. <laughs> right? Jung if you're listening, if you're up for it. <laughs> well, I just don't see... I, I mean, I'd love to be surprised on this, but I don't see the Biden administration making North Korea priority whatsoever. I think it will be, uh, you know, dealing with all the domestic issues. They've already outlined this on their tra- transition website. Then you've got uh, resuscitating the JCPOA, the mm. Iran deal. That's going to be a high priority. China, there's a big strategic issue there. Probably there'll be some Israel-Palestine stuff. Maybe, I don't know what his position on the Trump's move of the embassy to Jerusalem was, but that was a controversial thing that you know broke apart from Obama-era policy quite a lot in the Middle East. And then North and Korea... And Pompeo's visit to the settlements last week. Yep, yeah. And then, and then North Korea, just, I think it, you know, it can't see any creative policy whatsoever maybe there will be interest in uh looking at it as an arms control issue um but yeah i i really just i'm quite pessimistic about the outlook of of north korea being a priority issue which is frankly bad for all of us and our listeners but, but chad uh doesn't north korea have this tendency to try to mm. make it a priority yeah what have you found about uh, their ability or or likelihood of them yeah they yeah everyone's speculating about the possibility of an icbm test and you know i i don't see how that's in their short to medium term interest because if they play their hand too soon they don't know whether or not they've stymied any potential interest on the Biden administration side. Also, we know they're very reliant and have become very reliant on China over the last two years. And in the midst of an analysis on this, but the interesting thing is Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un have uh, exchanged almost um, 20 letters over the last couple of years. Mm. Um, They keep referring to this series of important agreements. And when you look at some of the language on the letters from Xi Jinping, it seems to be a lot of encouragement for international diplomacy and focusing on the economy. He never talks about military issues. Um, so I, I don't know if I think right now, unless there was Chinese support at a tacit level for, for an ICBM test, I think it would not be worth the risk of creating a three, like a three way 
collision basically between the US and China in the early days of of, of Biden. I don't think China wants that. It would it would be almost like it to. Uh, to not to paraphrase, but to twist the old Korean saying, it would be almost like the shrimp saying to the two wares, hey, come and fight around me. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I, I don't think the Chinese would appreciate that just yet. Maybe later, but so I think it would be a misstep for them to go ahead with an ICBM. Also, jo, uh, John Everard, former UK ambassador to North Korea, pointed this out in, in a comment he gave me on this very question. What if it goes wrong? Like This is a huge ICBM they, they wheeled out, that October 10th parade. Um, the political and military cost of getting it wrong. Mm. It's a big one to get wrong. And you mean a failed launch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally a big one to get wrong. Uh, Jongmin, uh, can you tell us anything about what South Korean media or South Korean government are uh, speculating about all this? Right now, I think the most vocal one is Lee Inyoung, the unification minister. Mm. Um, he's not... He's not, he's not predicting, but he is directly warning to Pyongyang, mm. sending some messages um, via speeches or statements. Yeah. What he's saying is that in the past, uh, we saw that North Korea used provocation to get some leverage vis-a-vis Washington. But he is warning that North Korea shouldn't do that because, first of all, the time changed. And they have a different relationship with the U.S. now, and they have to make uh, careful and... A wise decision in order not to worsen relations with South Korea and the United States. So he is basically expecting some sort of possible provocation from North Korea, but he is being more proactive, saying mm. you shouldn't do that. What uh, channel is he saying that in? Uh, through speeches that he gives, like for civilian events or MOU-directed mm-hmm. uh, events. He's not like sending letters to North Korea, mm. but it's a very common thing that ministers do when they want to still send signals to North Korea to use these speeches. Mm. Um, all right, uh, final question. Um, if I could get each of you to give me a little bit of a teaser about something that you've either just recently written for or are now writing for NK Pro. I sometimes translate full texts of internal North Korea documents. Sometimes it's really hard to independently verify if they are um, authentic, but still, in case they are true, they are authentic. It's really helpful for us to actually see the Mm. full text of these documents. For example, in the past couple of months, I translated uh, the very important document where they talked about shooting people who are illegally crossing the border, including yeah. animals as well, not just people. This corroborates what uh, General Abrams, Abrams, was it? He was talking about a certain buffer zone where they are ordered to shoot and kill whoever crosses that buffer zone. And that decree directly mentioned one to two kilometers buffer zone. So right. uh, you can see the full translation um, from NK Pro. Um, another thing that I recently translated was how North Korea is clamping down on homeless people in terms of COVID-19 guideline. They want to minimize movements. Now, are there homeless people in North Korea? Uh, they wouldn't. That's why it's interesting because mm. they, in state media, uh, if you use KCNA Watch, it doesn't really come up that they admit that they have homeless people. They only use the term homeless people when they're talking about how other countries, other countries have, mm, yeah. like United States, they have so many homeless people and the government cannot really, they don't have the capacity to handle them and how socialist countries are different. In this document that you translated, do they use the word nosukja for homeless people or is there another word for that? Pangrangja, wanderer. Ah, wanderer, okay, like, also, a, like a tramp or a hobo. Yes, and also people who doesn't have homes, who who are wandering around without homes. Mm, okay. All right. Uh, thanks for that, Chongmin. Colin, have you uh, got anything coming up or recent uh, on the NK Pro? wrote something last week that I think is kind of uh, interesting about uh, when it comes to North Korean priorities, economic priorities, what they're constructing. You know, every year they come up with a few giant construction projects that mm. they promote big time in state media. Like a hospital. Uh, yeah, like last year would have been uh, this uh, Yang Dok Hot Springs Resort and, you know, previous years, giant street projects. Uh, and this time, uh, a few of them are delayed, like the big new hospital in Pyongyang and the Wonsan uh, Beach Resort, mm. this giant beach resort. Uh, but then amidst all that, you know, there's still a lot. They, these have been delayed. Uh, due to COVID-19, due to economic sanctions and the floods and typhoons and everything. Uh, but despite delaying these and kind of put stalling them, there's still a lot of other construction going on around the country. So uh, I still pay attention to that and I still write about that on NK Pro. 
um, and they're building all these uh, youth theaters around the country as sort of a priority in the last few months, which is mm-hmm. just kind of odd. Um, I think it just comes down to it's a place to, to gather people for political rallies. We saw in June during a anti-South Korea protest that they used one of these. So uh, it's just curious that we can still see a lot of uh, construction priorities going on yeah. uh, amid that. And then just a second thing that I, I'm always paying attention to on NK Pro is North Korean space, aerospace development. Mm. And there's been a lot of developments in that in the last year in terms of what they're saying in state media and what they're signaling. Um, so, and then there's a big school, a big campus in, in Pyongyang that hasn't opened yet that I suspect has a, an aerospace connection. So I guess keep your eye out for, for more on that. Keep your, keep your eye out for a North Korean man on the, or woman on the moon. Uh, that would be quite I something. I don't know about that, but uh, well, at least uh, maybe a launch... Uh, in the next year, uh, who knows? All right, and Chad? Uh, yeah, like I said, I'm trying to do a uh, open source analysis on the state of the China-North Korea relationship, just really a dig dive into everything that's been said, all the meetings we know that have taken place to just try and get a better sense for uh, what Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un may have agreed uh, during those five meetings they had between 2018 and 2019. Because in many ways, certainly economically, uh, China is the most important relationship for North Korea, isn't it? It's so important and that relationship has such momentum. Um, even now with the COVID situation, so many letters this year between the two leaders. Mm. I mean, some months we've seen four letters between um, the two leaders. Which side announces the letters? The North Koreans pretty much always do. I- I've seen far fewer in Chinese state media, but um, I mean, they're actually highly repetitive. They're usually focused on national anniversaries or important dates, but there's always a, a few lines of interesting detail. And frankly, the the reason I think it's so important is because I believe that after Hanoi, the calculus has changed and we are kind of still assuming maybe in in Washington and uh, those of us from a Western background that North Korea actually wants a deal with the United States. Mm. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't matter who's in the White House on in January. Like, right. Uh, and I, to be honest, I'm starting to question if they do, at least for the for the foreseeable future, given the state of the relationship with China. We'll see. Okay, well, keep an eye out for that. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And once again, please check out the website, nknews.org, where you'll find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. Consider buying a one-year subscription today, or if you already have one, upgrade to NK Pro. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast, and to Arias Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm-hmm.